0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Optimise Interview, the Ethics Knowledge video. My name is Daniel Ferrara, and today we'll talk about consenting and capacity. So, you know, capacity is something that comes up regularly on medical interviews and the basis of which is based on the idea that actually, as medical professionals, we're constantly assessing patients' capacity on an everyday basis. and also, it's an area where there's quite a lot of room for contention. So, quite a popular topic when it comes to medical um, interviews. It's a good topic because it actually, it gives the examiner an opportunity to test your knowledge uh, on, you know, on medical ethics um, uh, based on some of the scenarios. So, we'll talk about that later on. Now, we're constantly involved in assessing capacity, whether that's you know talking to a patient uh, about their lifestyle, prescribing new medication. Um, gain consent for a diagnostic test or indeed proposing um, surgical intervention. So in order to consent for any of the above, um, you know, we must first establish that the patient has capacity. In other words, are they able to consent? In everyday practice to be honest, um, this matter doesn't become an issue because um, you, know, you have a discussion with the patient, uh, make sure that they're fully informed of the decision uh, process or the treatment process and, um, and Usually, um, you know, you could come to a mutual agreement. Now, usually, capacity only comes into contention when there is a, you know, a disagreement, or the medical profession, um, or the medical professional feels that the patient isn't acting in their best interest, and there may be something that um, uh, that may explain their uh, irrational behaviour. Now, let's first talk about what the definition of capacity is. So capacity is the ability of an individual to understand uh, the information provided, consider um, the pros and cons, uh, be able to retain that information provided in order to make a decision, uh, and finally to be able to communicate that in any means possible uh, with the treating team. So one must qualify or uh, uh, satisfy all four of those uh, areas in order to, uh, to be deemed to have capacity. Having said that, it's really important to understand that, um, that everyone is deemed to be capacitors until proven otherwise. So there's the Mental Health Act of 2005, uh, which is the legal framework by which um, you know we act upon. And it states that in- each individual is deemed to have capacity until proven otherwise. So the baseline is that everyone has capacity until um, you know, the, the medical person responsible proves beyond doubt that they do not. And really that's there to safeguard patients' autonomy and to safeguard patients' against malpractice. And in these scenarios, uh, what I've sometimes seen is the, the interchangeable use of the words, capacity and competence. So these are two very similar terms, uh, but um, and the, often in medical practice, we may use one or the other interchangeably, but actually there is a very subtle difference between the two. So if you ever asked about difference, it's important to realize that capacity is often a medical term um, and it's usually time and subject specific. Um, and capacity is assessed by doctors and it can change over time depending on the decisions at hand. Whereas competence is more of a legal term and usually it refers to an ability or the global ability of an individual to make decisions. And it's therefore assessed by a judge and usually that does not change. So there is a sort of difference between the two. We talked about capacity, we talked about the Mental Capacity Act, which is the legal framework. Um, and we talked about the idea that the Mental Capacity Act is there to safeguard patient autonomy. So what is autonomy? And I think it's really important that you understand it, but also mention it in to you because it's, it's one of the key principles of medical ethics. So, autonomy is the, the right of competent adults to make informed decisions um, regarding their own medical care. So, it's a basic right. Um, and as a medical professional, it's our duty to provide patients with all the relevant information so that they could make informed decisions about their care. Um, and if, you know, and we talked earlier about patients making rational decisions, but you know, if the patient makes a decision that you consider to be irrational, it does not mean that patients lack capacity. Um, you know, uh, it just simply means that based on the information that they've got, they've come to a decision. Now your job as a medical professional is to is to first of all check and safeguard the patient to make sure that they are capacitors. However, if they are capacitors then you know equally' it's your job to support their you know decision-making process regardless. Um, so, for example, you know, I'll give you some examples of a um, uh, patient exercising autonomy, which may or may not seem rational uh, to a treating colleague. And um, so these are the kind of contentious issues that you may be faced with in an interview. So, for example, um, a patient declining a blood transfusion in the context of a, a major bleed, uh, that, and that decision may be based on personal or religious beliefs, while it may not tell you own personal beliefs, certainly does with, uh, with the patients. Um, another scenario is a uh, patient declining dialysis uh, in the case of end-stage renal failure based on their personal preferences. A person uh, refusing major surgery or percutaneous treatment, choosing a more conservative approach um, following a heart attack. A person uh, declining non-invasive or invasive ventilation in advanced COPD based on their personal preference. These are sort of the type of examples that you may be faced with when it comes to assessing patient capacity. And, um, and, you know, these are the situations where you want to ensure that you, following the assessment of capacity, that you respect, the patient wishes, regardless um, of your own view, um, if the patient is thought to be capacitive. And in your answer, I think it's really important to try to demonstrate that you try to empathize and understand the patient's perspective. Um, that you remain impartial uh, to your own beliefs uh, but you know um, that you are somebody who would um, uh, support your patient's decision-making process um, and really your responsibility is to make sure that the patient is fully informed in that decision-making process um, and support them uh, regardless of the outcome now some of the some of the um, that you come across may involve a patient who may not have capacity and in which case um, you know, we really must make sure there are safeguards in place so for example discussion with the next of kin um, involving an IMCA so if there is no next of kin um, who, or, a, or a guardian who has a valid power of attorney uh, you may need to involve an IMCA so this an IMCA is an independent mental capacity advocate to a patient and Medical professionals can apply to have an IMCA represent a patient in a decision making process. Now, again, that could be uh, with regards to um, blood transfusion, it could be regarding major surgery, maybe regarding providing antibiotics. So, those are the medical you know, elements. You can also apply for an IMCA uh, for social reasons. For example, um, you know, an example of a patient who has memory impairment. and there's a decision-making process for um, placement into social care um, so you could have an independent medical you know, mental capacity advocate to represent the patient's interest in that decision-making process of course it's always very good and useful um, to involve the market in that decision-making process so as the, the medical professional your uh, responsibility is to make sure that Now let's move on to talking about consenting. Now consenting is um, it's a legally binding contract that you and your patient um, moves into. Now, it may be a verbal consent, but often when it comes to major interventions, um, you would do a uh, more formal consent. Um, and in order to consent, it's the responsibility of a care provider to provide a comprehensive account of the proposed procedure. Um, and to ensure that the patient is fully informed of the decision that they're making. Now, that involves the benefits, but also the risks involved in that procedure. So it goes without saying that actually someone consenting for any procedure must be some, you know, somebody who is uh, able to competently carry out that procedure uh, and certainly understand the pros and cons involved in that procedure. Um, so, and the reason I mention that is because actually sometimes in your interview questions, uh, depending on the level to which you're being interviewed. So, for example, if an IMT and you're being asked to consent someone for a coronary angiogram, if you are not competent in carrying out that procedure or you're not fully aware of the, the pros and cons and some of the risks involved, then your responsibility is to make sure that the consent process involves someone who is an expert in that, in that field. Um, and so that is something that I would make sure that you safeguard your answers against. Okay, so let's move on to talking about some challenging situations. So, some of the you know challenging situations that come up in interviews include things like vaccinations that may be to a capacitive adult or a minor, um, and in those situations, the idea of legal competence comes into play, which we'll talk about shortly. Um, discussing treatment options, for example, it may be you know medical treatments like dialysis, surgery, or um, or even simply antibiotics, or medications for a patient who may or may not have uh, the capacity now those situations where patients have a, a, an impaired mental uh, sort of uh, state for example if they have delirium or dementia uh, you know these are sort of challenging situations where you might want to involve some of the, the the earlier principles that we talked about if the patients not able to uh, make appropriate decisions, it's really important that we safeguard that by, um, you know, carrying out your duty of care by providing the best treatment possible, and actually uh, ensure that the patient's interests are um, and their, um, you know, their interests are uh, safeguarded by having uh, and either an advocate from the family or an advocate that is independent uh, supporting that decision making process, or indeed. The situation that you faced in an interview may be a non-medical issue, for example, financial matters. So, for example, there are situations where patients are admitted to hospital with a terminal diagnosis and they wish to um, have their uh, financial matters uh sorted, and you may be asked to give an opinion regarding their mental state with regards to writing a will. Uh, so, you know, there are a multitude of a multitude of scenarios that you may be asked to be involved in, but I think when you're Approach a situation or a, a you know a scenario in this context. It's really important that you uh, first of all uh, understand what capacity is. What are the four principles that uh, underlie capacity? You understand what the Mental Capacity Act two thousand five uh, states um, and the reason for which it's there to safeguard patient autonomy. You um, are aware of key words such as autonomy, capacity, informed consent to answer these questions and you know and you are able to weigh up the pros and cons of a situation and to have a you know impartial and supportive role in that decision-making process but understand that regardless of um, you know how rational that decision may be so be your job really is to ensure that the patient is supported that's fully informed in that decision-making process and unless a patient is thought to be um, uh, you know, incompetent, Making that decision uh, due to an impairment in their memory or their uh, capacity, um, then you know if they make you know it is really the autonomy of the patient to decide and choose the uh, the care that they receive. And I think finally, I think we should you know touch on you know some of the basics of medical ethics. Uh, you know, so there are for example, four key ethical principles of medical ethics. and you know, The first one being beneficence, which is the you know, first, you must have the patient's best interest. Uh, when, with regards to decision-making, um, you know, having non-maleficence, which is, you know, first, do no harm. So you know, the decision-making process uh, must not be um, to the detriment of the patient. Um, the third being autonomy, which we already talked about, which is, the idea that you want to um, support the patient decision-making process but still respect their right to choose the type of care that they've and Finally, justice, which is the idea that uh, you know, all patients, regardless um, of their beliefs um, and their background, should be treated fairly and equally. And so you know, it is your responsibility, really, as a medical professional, to provide everyone with an equal, equal opportunity so, so those are sort of four key principles so I would you know I would say that in your answers try to involve uh, some of those key key um key points keywords uh, try to uh, preempt um these answers by having a broad understanding of what what each of the four key uh, pillars of you know, medical ethics are um try to involve that that in your answer but also understand, uh, that you are somebody who would, um, you know, do your very best to support patients, um, and make informed decisions about their care. And you will remain impartial and support uh, the autonomy of, you know, of a patient, regardless of the outcome. Um, and, uh, that you would have you know, good safe practice by involving, um, you know, safeguards, uh, to ensure that the patient, um, care is not compromised, and that it's safeguarded against medical practice as well, for example, by involving an extra next-to-kin, IMCA, uh, you know, and the multidisciplinary team in the decision-making process, particularly when it comes to a patient who does not have capacity. So I hope that station was helpful. Um, we'll talk about some of the other principles in our next um, scenario. So I hope you join me uh, in those discussions.